0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Open Observability Talks. I'm your host, Otan Horvitz, and here at Open Observability Talks, we talk about anything DevOps, observability, and open source. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Logs.io, the cloud-native observability platform. Logs.io takes the best-of-breed open source projects such as Prometheus, OpenSearch, Jaeger, OpenTelemetry, and offers them as a unified observability platform built for scale. For those joining the live stream on YouTube or Twitch, feel free to share questions and uh, comments on the chat. We'd be more than happy to uh, take some of these questions in and uh, make the conversation more interesting for both of us. Uh, I also wanted to share, I just came back from uh, Detroit, from uh, uh, KubeCon North America. It was great, uh, very good sessions also on the... Open Observability Day, uh, Open Telemetry Unplugged, and the other uh, collocated events. I also got to speak there. Uh, the videos, by the way, started uploading to the uh, CNCF YouTube channel, so uh, check it out. Uh, I'll also share some of the updates from KubeCon on the second part of the show, the regular uh, news and industry updates uh, section. So it's worthwhile for you to stay until the end. Uh, and I'm also posting some of the interesting stuff on uh, Twitter, so feel free to follow me at Horvitz. Uh, another uh, important thing that I wanted to share before we uh, start today's episode, we've launched the DevOps Pulse Survey. That's a yearly survey we run uh, at Logs.io on the state of DevOps and observability uh, that uh, we ask people such as yourselves, and then we publish the report with the results uh, and share it with the community. So. Uh, feel free to uh, fill up the survey and uh, help us uh, help all of us uh, understand the state of uh, devops and observability. I'm putting it here on the uh, um, on the chat and also I'll share it uh, for the, with the podcast listeners on the uh, links for the for the episode. And with that, let's move on to today's episode. And today uh, the topic is understanding observability, is a data analytics problem and i'm uh, glad to have uh, a very dear uh, friend and guest mr david ostrovsky uh, let me add david to the stream hey david how's it going Hello. so uh um you, I've known you from your uh, previous role at uh, Proofpoint for many years, uh, where you gained a lot of experience on, on DevOps and observability, and now you're at uh, uh, Meta. I, I need to keep reminding myself not to say Facebook; it's uh, Meta these days. So, how about you uh, tell us a bit about uh, about yourself? So,
1: all right. So, hi everybody. Um, my name's David. I currently am a software engineer at Meta. Uh, I work in the financial uh, meta financials we we do uh, fraud detection and uh, uh, safety Uh, and before i joined meta about a year ago i was uh, at proofpoint which is a mid to large uh, cybersecurity company where i was the chief architect of the uh, r d center in israel Um, before that i was a big data guy and did all kinds of big data things uh, and not really observability so my observability journey started pretty much uh, Five-ish years ago, when I joined Proofpoint, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's grown quite a bit since then, right? It's it's fascinating how the industry changed in just five years. You know, from what was available back then to now.
0: Yeah, I didn't say just for the listeners who are not familiar with Proofpoint, what uh, what's the business? so Proofpoint is
1: a uh, is a large but uh, well known only if you're a uh, if you're a security person uh, company that does email and cloud security. Um, data leak prevention uh, endpoint detection there's a, a giant range of things that, that protect users from all kinds of uh, cyber cyber security threats uh, so I specifically uh, worked on the cloud security part which is uh, basically user tracking and making sure your cloud accounts and email accounts don't get taken
0: over or leak data and so on Sounds good. And uh, throughout this period, both at Proofpoint and uh, at Meta, I know that you're uh, very deeply involved with uh, observability. Uh, when we say observability, usually uh, most of us in the small organizations we immediately think about the uh, what I call the, the pipelining and the uh, the infrastructure to make sure that we actually uh, ingest uh, the uh, the telemetry and the process it and the index it and the, the sharding and the Scaling and, and things like that, which uh, is like the, the building blocks. Uh, but I know that the experience is uh, far different when you're a hyperscaler. They have to give us a bit of the perspective.
1: Uh, yeah. So, so um, when I came to Proofpoint, right, it was just a little while after we purchased uh, the company that built like the core uh, cloud security product. It was very startup mode, right? So observability was a very distant afterthought behind actually shipping a product and doing something, right? And uh, so for the first year or so when I joined, everything was on fire all the time, right? And the problem with the, with lacking observability is not that everything's on fire, is you don't know what exactly is on fire and why, right? And so we we're kind of chasing like the, 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 the survival level of observability, which is knowing when something goes wrong and then zooming in on what it is. And like over time, like over four years, we obviously uh, changed it hugely. We uh, also grew in scale to Uh, hundreds of millions of users uh, right on the platform from like i think a million when i joined Um, so and i thought i knew what observability was when i left proofpoint i was very convinced that I, i had this thing completely solid uh and then i joined meta and discovered that there's like a whole world of things you can do after you solve all the basic observability problems right and now i'm relearning what it actually means uh to have good observability uh, when it's not just you know when it's not 100 million users, it's you know 2 billion users, and and you have essentially infinite resources to throw at the problem, uh, so this is this is very eye-opening, right? I, I I just now realized how much more than you can actually do uh, once you stop dealing with the day-to-day issues of you know is my system even working, right?
0: So so just to wait for for listeners to understand, so your your team actually doesn't deal with the within the infrastructure there's another team that sets up all the uh, what I called before the the pipelining the, the plumbing uh, the, the baseline and you're a consumer of, of a well-established uh, uh, infrastructure
1: right yes you're right and it's so much more than that right it's it's, it's not one team it's it's you know, a lot of teams would deal with various uh, aspects of how to provide durability and their actual full-fledged product teams with product managers and, uh, you know, UI experts and backend infra. right. Essentially, you know, if you take Grafana Labs, uh, meta has its own equivalent of that, which builds like a, a product, which provides dashboarding or uh, or various other aspects of observability internally, because, you know, there's tens, tens of thousands of engineers, right. And it just makes sense at that scale to provide, uh, really customized really purpose-built internal products that solve specific issues you know at, at metascale um, and uh, yeah so my team for example deals with uh, the decision-making layer in fraud detection right which is you know a lot of machine learning a lot of uh, heuristics uh, and we don't deal with infrastructure we use uh, the infrastructure provided by meta and, uh, infra teams uh, and they use observability infrastructure provided by different observability teams and we can all Access like the shared UI tools together. So if I want to create an alert, uh, I can just go to the uh, dashboarding tool and click a few buttons, and I have an alert. And I can customize, you know, the, the equivalent of what most people probably know from PagerDuty. I can customize it to a very specific thing, you know, to an individual person on the team, or you know, a whole chain of people on different teams. Um, so yeah, so the tools are really there, and I'm experiencing it's it's, it's a very weird experience to be the consumer and not the maker of the observability tools, right? Uh, and and once I started doing that, I discovered that uh, it's not actually less work. It's a lot more work that you have to put in to get good observability, because now you actually have to be creative and think what other value you can provide to customers uh, through observability beyond just making sure that systems are working, because I'm not in charge of making sure systems are working. There's other teams that do that, and they're very good at it, much better than I ever was. Um, and so I have to make sure that um, we move away from like the, the physical layer of observability, right? Making sure VMs are up and the application is, you know, is actually working to the business layer of observability, which is making sure that the product is doing what it's supposed to do and the you know, different changes in input data or user behavior or some other team publishing a change to production doesn't change the logical behavior of the system in a way that negatively impacts what we're doing, right? And it's a, it's a much harder problem because there's really only so many ways physically that a, a software system can be broken, right? And you have your four golden signals, and that covers like 80% of all the different ways. I'm not m- minimizing, by the way, what the SRE teams uh, do. They're they're they an amazing they do an amazing job, <laughs> but like there's if you start thinking of how many different ways logically a system can misbehave you can't enumerate them. We, we keep coming up with new ways to break the logic of the system, right?
0: Which is the uh, what uh, people call the unknown unknowns, what uh, started the movement of uh, going beyond monitoring and into observability, the uh, need to uh, uh, be able to ask ad hoc questions because you can't just list a number of failure states and then uh, prepare for these, right?
1: That's exactly so, yeah. And there's, for example, there's a lot more room for newer techniques like machine learning and prediction to try and figure out how you know a complex system will behave and you know, what's outside the norm, right? Because if you're just looking at raw utilization, like resource utilization, you can only go up to 100%. You can't go more than 100%. But but you know if you have a system that uh, has some kind of user-oriented behavior, um, you, predicting how users will behave and you know how many users will join your system on a given day, that's very difficult. And you know, what what's normal for for example, fraud detection changes every day, and so you have to keep up. And you can just, you know, set an alert on, let's say, 90% CPU usage, and and say, okay, well, we're good, we have alerting now. Um, so this is very, uh, very complicated.
0: Yeah, sorry. No, because I think you said something very interesting about machine learning, and uh, I know that there's lots of buzz out there, but uh, I, I'm looking for the beyond the buzz to actually uh, the organizations that put it in in day-to-day practice. Can you? Share with us how you're making use of machine learning for extra- extracting these insights. So there's a bunch of things, but I, I can tell what what I actually use personally,
1: uh, which is um, using ML to predict um, how a particular me- a signal or metric will behave. Right, and and oftentimes when it's tied to user behavior, uh, what's normal changes not just you know uh, on a schedule when I mean, it's more users in the evening, fewer users at night. Um, it changes seasonally, right? So uh, there are holidays, and uh, different countries have different holidays. And so, building something that will predict what will be normal at any given hour you know, for a system is a very difficult machine learning problem. Uh, problem. And there's a bunch of uh, tools that are out there, right? There's quite a few machine learning companies that uh, provide ML-based, you know, anomaly detection. Uh, but anomaly detection is one aspect of it. Prediction of what isn't an anomaly, right? How your metric is going to change over time. Uh, that's a related but separate ML problem. And that's something that, uh, I just get out of the box, right? With, with the meta tools, I can, uh, set alerts based on thresholds, or I can pick one of many different ML models and say, okay, well, let's predict this signal using this particular model, which is like a black box. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know what's going on inside of it, but much smarter people do. And it can tell me, okay, well, we, it predicts that this, uh, metric based on past performance is going to. Uh, Let's say, okay, well, let's alert if it deviates from that and hope that the ML model is actually correct in predicting how the metric is going to behave. But again, getting that as just something that exists out of the box, uh, it becomes a problem of, okay, well, what do I choose? How do I monitor my metrics? Beyond just which metrics to pick, now you have to consider how you're going to try and predict the behavior of the system. And so the higher up the stack you climb, like the, the, the more different choices you have, and it, it, it becomes you know either just an intuitive guess or just an iterative process of let's model it this way, let's model the metric another way, until you get to a good level of noise, right? And, uh, and you don't want to go into the alert fatigue area. You don't want to be just sleep well at night, but everything's actually broken. Uh, so there's like a good middle ground you will eventually reach. and, and that, Mostly happens if your system is actually live and in production, because otherwise, you know.
0: No, but it's nice that you have. Uh, actually, on the on the last episode last month, I, uh, <clears throat> I dedicated the episode to uh, platform engineering, and the growing uh, discipline of of uh, uh, making many of these uh, types of uh, functions, as you mentioned, uh, reusable services that many uh, organizations many. Teams, product teams around the, around the around the organization can consume, and I think what you're describing takes this approach to the to its higher highest end. Because even, as you mentioned, even machine learning modeling is offered as a service, so you can choose from a catalog of, of uh, models uh, to best suit your uh, your needs. That's that's I think an amazing level of uh, of uh, implementing platform engineering in the, in the organization. And what you said before, I think that's the most mind-blowing thing, that you said that we can picture Grafana Labs and that is an internal organization within uh, Meta just to serve the, the internal needs of the, the rest of the engineering organization. That's, uh, that's that's mind-blowing, if you ask me.
1: It actually makes sense of that scale, right? When you have tens of thousands of engineers, that's like a whole giant customer base. And it makes sense to put in a lot of effort into building internal tools. Um, and I've had a conversation with people outside of Meta quite a few times of why you know Meta doesn't usually use external tools, and it's not because you know we're snobs or we think we can do it better. It's because there's just so many different competing requirements. It's really more efficient to have an internal team build a tool um, than just buy something off the shelf and try to adapt it to the you know, million requirements uh, that every system at Meta has to stand. Um, like you know, be, between privacy and security, and uh, integrating with internal systems. So yeah, it actually makes sense to have there are our own internal, you know, Grafana labs and our own internal, uh, whatever logs I/O. Sorry, uh, you know, <laughs> and, or whatever else you want to do. But like, yeah. so, so the fascinating thing, like if if I compare what I'm doing right now at Meta versus, let's say, six years ago when I joined Proofpoint, is we couldn't really do that when I joined Proofpoint. We had to build everything uh, from like existing blocks or invent things. Uh, but today you could, right? If I started a company today, I most certainly would not go out and, you know, install, uh, you know, Elasticsearch on-prem and, uh, or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, install Jaeger and and the uh, different tracers and all that. I would find a company that actually offers that as a service and uh, there's dozens of them out there and just pay them for that service. Certainly it's small scale, right? So we were talking earlier, um, uh, just between us, like of, you know, what scale differences do they uh, exist? And I think at smaller scale, when you're a small company just starting out, that's the perfect time to buy things as opposed to build them, right? Uh, because it's still cheap enough, right? If it, at a small enough scale, you can pay fifty dollars to Amazon and have observability uh, and traces and a bunch of other things. When you're a mid to large size company, that starts being a very complicated decision, right? So you, because just paying for a service is so expensive that you start considering whether maybe it makes sense to hire some headcount and do the same thing. Uh, personally, I experienced um, the the trade-off, and I strongly believe in actually still buying services as opposed to building them yourselves. Uh, because when you're building something that's not your core business, I think in the vast majority of cases, that's that's... A mistake you shouldn't be focusing on that. But again, it's it's very case by case, right? And so yeah. if you have to pay whatever logs.io a million dollars for observability, you start seriously considering maybe you should pay that in you know to engineers and build it yourselves.
0: Um but I, I think what uh the, the interesting point that you brought the experience in joining meta is that when you uh offload the the plumbing, the, 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 the bare metal type of things, uh, so to speak, then you get uh, to address the higher level, higher order problems that usually in these organizations you don't actually get to because all we do all day long is just, okay, so how do I get my logs, how do I get my traces, how do I uh, correlate between the signals, how do I index, uh, what is the sampling that will make it uh, feasible for me to add a policy to make it feasible, and, and uh, that's why many of them uh, uh, don't get to address these higher-order problems. You want to ultimately move the needle in the top line if we talk about the business-facing uh, decisions. Or you want to, uh, if you're an internal platform engineering uh, team, you want to enable your developers to improve their experience so then you accelerate the development cycles. And these are the things that you want to really focus on. This is where you can differentiate.
1: Yeah, absolutely so, so you brought up two things which are i think separate interesting conversations one is um how do you even uh, start the conversation about observability and and the other is um what other things you can do once you solve the basic problems uh to maybe address you know development efficiency and better engineering and what other things you can improve so okay so i, I really want to talk about both of them so let, let's take let's take turns so one is the a big difference i know is for myself right so my conversations at meta uh, about observability usually usually start from the sla they start from the a business uh discussion and then they kind of break down into the, the you know the the normal chain of you you talk about slas then you define your service level objectives then you go and find the right indicators and you you work from the business inwards whereas in most other places I experienced observability where you actually had to build the physical infrastructure, it always started from an engineering conversation of, you know, how how do we monitor CPU usage? How do we make sure machines stay up? Or, or, you know, how do we, uh, whatever, detect the service crashing and restarting, right? It wasn't, I'm not going to say always, but in most cases, it wasn't business driven. It was just engineering driven because you were first of all focused on the engineering problem. So now, we really do start out with what is the impact we're trying to achieve? Like what's the customer going to experience, whether it's the external users or internal customers who rely on our service? What do they expect? Like what do we promise the customers? And we kind of work backwards from that to what are the things we need to um, look at as indicators, how we're going to combine them together and predict or alert on them and uh, what's the expected behavior. Uh, and we don't actually worry about, you know, is the system up? Yes, of course it's up. It's been up for a, a decade, and there's a thousand engineers making sure it stays up, right? And it's not us. So that, yeah. and again, I can't speak about for their experience. maybe you can you can find someone who actually works uh, and the inframe, that would be a different, fascinating conversation, but like I, I can't talk
0: about that because i don't, I honestly don't know um but that's the beauty because you have sort of a platform engineering that serves you you are also in in a way a platform engineering services provider but a layer underneath you that abstracts all these that's the beauty the fact that you although you can with with your skill set but you don't need to because someone else took that off of you your head you, you offload that and you can focus on as you said to break down the slas to slos to slis and see how you serve the needs of your I don't know uh, 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 fraud detection uh, capabilities or, or whatnot. The, this, this is important because this is what your uh, your your differentiation is in your team. So I think um, the the fact that you uh, and by the way I had an episode on this show uh, with uh, a staff uh, SRE from Google and it was uh, the same the same vein. Obviously Google invented the SRE book so uh, and, and methodology so it's it's uh, expected uh, but. You see that it's, again, top-down from what's the SLA and SLOs, and then deriving the SLIs and what you need to uh, monitor. Because availability is not necessarily important. Things break, especially in in microservices and cloud-native architecture, so that everything is always up. But it doesn't mean that if not everything is up, that something is actually wrong in terms of the customer experience. So we need to monitor the things that actually matter, the things that actually translate to the top line, uh, uh flows and and experience that our our customers if it's a customer facing uh, flows uh, experience and this is why i think what you're saying resonates well with uh, what with that discussion with google and many other discussions that i uh, that i have on a, on a regular basis um and so and that's that's one side you wanted to also address uh, the the other uh, interesting yeah. uh,
1: so if you imagine observability as a continuum, right, where you can focus your intentions, right? And most companies focus on the middle part, which is like the physical infrastructure. How do we make sure the system stays up and everything is ticking, right? And if you go to one side, uh, that would be like the business logical layer, and you can uh, do a lot of very impactful things that, are, that actually bring value to customers, right? That actually validate the existence of the team. Uh, you can go in the other direction, which is, uh, what other things we can do that are that rely on observability or rely on the infrastructure we built for observability that can actually improve the lives of developers, not just customers, but actually accelerate the development process and improve the you know, engineering quality. And there's a lot you can do. Uh, uh, so you actually had Michael Haberman on the, on the podcast like two years ago. And that, that's an example of a company that does something for developers that takes advantage of the fact that you already have you know, tracing installed. That's like one small example, but at Meta, you have all the things you want to actually to collect. You have all the data sources you can possibly imagine, and there's things you can do once you already have the data that don't just help the customer, they help the developer. For example, um, and I know you read the the Temple blog uh, that Yuri uh, published, right, of uh, different pillars. And if you look at the uh, profiling pillar, which is collecting uh, profiling information from live systems, You can do so much stuff that helps developers if you have live telemetry on how your code actually um, behaves live in production, right? You can can know in advance whether changing a particular piece of code is dangerous or not, right? Because you know how critical that piece of code is, right? If it's on the hot path of your application. Um, There's actually a few companies I talked to uh, when I worked at Proofpoint. We looked at uh, at their offerings that let you uh, do live debugging on production systems. You could actually uh, kind of trace into a instance of a microservice in production. So it's not unique to Meta. There's actually pretty much anything we talk about. There's there is a, a company out there that's doing that. It's, it's only a question of finding that and integrating all the things that the different companies uh, offer. Uh, but you know, doing things like live debugging or having. Uh, an id integration with the profiling in production so you can while you add new features you can actually know how the surrounding code works in production that's a massive boost to engineering quality right and um, again that's something you don't really focus on if you can't spare the attention to install profiling and uh, pay for the resources that it takes because you know it, it does take resources um, and a different direction we can go which is data observability right because Oftentimes, when you when you read blogs or you know listen to conversations, about observability—it's it's all about the three to six pillars, right? Which is you know let's make sure the live system stays live. Uh, but most companies today are very data driven. They collect a lot of data. They use it uh, offline, batch processes, uh, in real time, whatever. Um, and we only scratch the surface of what data observability is, because. Pretty much all the decisions uh large applications like the one we had at proofpoint many different applications that meta make are based on data we collect and models uh would build on top of those or queries be built on top of those and you know as they say garbage in garbage out if you don't monitor continuously that your data is clean and available and you know it's uh complete all right then it, it has a knock-on effect that bypasses the physical layer. The physical layer still works, but it goes straight to the logic layer. Your application misbehaves because the data came in uh, in a way you didn't expect. And so there's a lot you can do uh, to actually make sure your data is at the bare minimum you know, clean, like you're not missing uh, data or you're, it's not malformed, which is uh, you know, it's a very straightforward. Uh, so you do
0: injection, like uh, the equivalent, obviously, you work with internal tools, but the equivalent of monitoring the, uh, I don't know, Kafka streams or something like that. Or can you just just for to make it more uh, concrete for the listeners to understand?
1: All right, so it's a good question. If I if I had my own company and I was and I wanted to build this, what would I actually do? Right. So yeah, if if it's a live system, uh, something like stream based, so Kafka or whatever, Kinesis or something. Uh, then it's, first of all, validating schemas, making sure the data that goes into the pipeline is exactly the shape and uh, size I want it to be. It's not missing necessary fields, you know, it's not malformed, dealing with the malformed data somehow. And then making sure that what comes out the other side is actually uh, at least in the shape and size that I expect. Um, and the much harder question is... Is it the full data? Because that's actually very hard to know. Not often that you can actually tell whether you get all the data or not. Are you losing data somewhere along the way? You're going to be making, let's say if you're sharding data and one shard gets lost for some reason, for a physical reason, uh, you build a model which is going to be missing a chunk of data. Depending on how you sharded it, it might be an important chunk of data. <laughs> um, so that that's something where I would focus a lot of attention because today there are actually really good tools for that right Kafka just comes with a bunch of built-in things that you can use like schema registry and validations and all that um making sure data is complete is a much harder problem I'm not actually aware of any tool that just gives it to you out of the box so you'd have to build something there uh, or maybe I just find the right tool which I'm not aware of um but again beyond that right when you build models right uh, models usually you train them or you, you train them once every so often. You don't continuously train model, uh, models most of the time. And then if the data changes, the behavior of the model might change between trainings. And so you need to actually look at the output uh, of whatever it is you're producing to make sure it doesn't suddenly deviate from uh, from what you expect.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I think this is, this is quite uh, quite um, advanced, I would say. Uh, I, didn't, I haven't seen many organizations that take the... Uh, that observability to this uh, to this level. Um, I want to go back to the point that you brought before about, um, I call it uh, developer observability. Actually, uh, I, I even had uh, an episode uh, here dedicated to developer observability. I uh, held it with uh, Liran, the uh, CTO and co-founder of uh, Rookout. Uh, and th- the idea was to really look at how, because people think about observability, many people think about observability only in the context of the production environment and the SRE, the dev. but I wanted to put the spotlight on, on how observability is impactful for uh, developers themselves. And you mentioned very briefly before, uh, teased us with, with some, some uh, potentials that you can actually take what runs in production. That's the, the powerful thing, to connect whatever runs in production and the learnings that we can get from how this piece of code, this microservice, whatever, uh, uh, operates in production, and then feed it back into the uh, development for the next version of that uh, that uh, source code, that uh, code base. So it could be for uh, testing. Uh, there's a, a trace test, for example, that uh, is an open source that uh, I've seen actually now at KubeCon. I met the, uh, the team there. And uh, you mentioned uh, some other startups and others. So uh, for testing, for development process, for for the entire software development life cycle, what where do you see uh, types of potentials of, of connecting this line of code uh, that the, the developer works on uh, to make it very concrete? Uh, you know, understanding the the impact in in, uh, in CPU if you have uh, profiling data or if uh, the, the the exceptions or or what not, can you uh, give your takes, whether it's from, from Meta or just generally your, your uh, 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 impression of where, where we can put the developers uh, in charge of or, or getting benefit directly from observability? So there's a lot of different things. There's a few things I experienced
1: personally. One is um, if you have tracing and profiling data from production, you can actually warn developers in advance if they're making a change that's going to increase CPU usage by a lot. right? Uh, and uh, even a small increase in CPU usage at metascale is a huge amount of CPU, right? Uh, so you, you make a one-line change in the backend of, of the Facebook application and suddenly you need a million uh, CPU cycles more than you needed before. So, uh, so that's one thing where you can actually know which parts of the code are on the hot path and then you can take extra care or maybe run a lot of simulations before you deploy something. Uh, and also in hindsight, if you deploy something, and suddenly now this specific line is being hit uh, 100,000 times more often than before, you can detect bugs which aren't really, it wouldn't you know, throw an exception. You just go through uh, the same code path, but just so much more, and now you're costing X, um, uh, X times more CPU. And you can go and roll back that change because it's detectable now, right? Because otherwise before that, if you have 100 million lines of code, it's not practical to know which particular line is responsible for your CPU usage, right? You can maybe detect it at a very coarse level right you deploy a particular microservice and the cpu usage goes up 20 percent that's detectable but in a huge application where one line of code makes the cpu usage go up 0.5 percent um that's that's below the noise level for most companies but at a large enough scale 0.5 percent is a big change right uh so that's one one direction where you can actually detect things that are below the noise level for most Common applications, or you know, most ways you you actually uh, monitor systems. The other direction, which is something, so we talked to Rookout when I was at Proofpoint, and I really, really wanted to use either their product or something similar. There's a couple of uh, companies in Israel that do similar things, um, and we didn't uh, ultimately, not because it's not good, but because of you know, priority issues and and uh, not finding time to actually uh, implement it which we unfortunately talked about earlier. Uh, But that's that's like one aspect which I really, really wanted to have, which is being able to debug an instance in production is like the holy grail of reproducing exceptions, right? It's one of the worst things you can have is an exception that happens every so often in production on a live system on one specific instance of one specific type of service. And you can't reproduce it because there's no, you know, that service does a million requests uh, per minute. And one of them throws an exception. There's just so much. Usually, you close those bugs with unable to reproduce, and you hope that you know they don't get worse. Uh, But if you can actually debug into the live code from your desktop, and hit and put a break on on that line under specific conditions, right? What literally went through an exception, and actually see all the context variables and see what led to that. That's huge. It's not going to happen very often, but when it does happen, uh, that's uh, I'm having trouble finding like the, the right words of how amazing that actually would be when you can actually preemptively start debugging something in production. Like that's that's something that that was science fiction to me before I heard that it's actually possible, right? Yeah. And of course, there's all kinds of limitations to that, and it, it does increase your CPU usage a little bit, but overall, it's it's definitely worth it. So that and that's something that you can actually have today, right? It's it's not like a, a story from Meta to to tease the audience of you know look at all the cool toys we have. Uh, it's actually you know, a lot of the cool toys you can actually get in from companies in the industry. Um, and I think that, you
0: know, It's also good examples of uh, the the power of uh, of getting different signals, different types of data. Uh, just for the, from these two examples that you gave, the CPU is uh, is founded on on uh, continuous profiling data. We actually actually hosted uh, the Frederic, uh, the co-founder of Polar Signals, and the uh, Parca. Uh, Open source project uh, about. and, and I, I titled it uh, "Continuous Profiling" as the, the new pillar for observability. I, I strongly believe that um, this is uh, this is something that uh, Graston. You gave a very advanced usage of that. That once you have the continuous profiling data, you can even map that to a specific even line of code and see the impact. That's a granularity that is uh, many many of us could only dream of. But I think at least it teases the rest of us. Uh, even if you're not there, to understand, no, it's not just logs, metrics, and traces. Uh, By the way, you mentioned uh, um, uh, the the live debugging. This is uh, yet another uh, type of uh, signal, uh, snapshots, application snapshots. So uh, I also wrote about that, a blog post about application snapshots as as another uh, signal, especially for developer observability. Uh, so I think it's it's very important, and uh, you mentioned by the way very briefly. I'm not sure if our audience is familiar. Yuri Kuro is the creator of um, of the Jaeger uh, distributed tracing project, currently uh, under the CNCF. But back then, it was it started as an internal project uh, at Uber, uh, and uh, is also one of the co-founders of uh, Open Tracing. And uh, today, these days, is, is actually also uh, at, at Meta. I think he's, he's one level uh, lower in the observability. He's, he's the one, or, or the, the team, uh, the, the group that uh, handles the observability uh, data infrastructure uh, layer. So uh, he's occupied in the problems that you don't need to be pre- preoccupied with, but his, his article, and I put the blog post uh, here uh, on the, uh, for the live stream audience, and also post it on the, uh, uh, on the uh, notes, show notes for the uh, podcast listeners, Uh, is actually from a month or two ago, he wrote that uh, we shouldn't be limited to just uh, the three pillars. He actually listed six pillars, so he he used the acronym TEMPO for that. And uh, and the thing is that uh, less of specifically, so it's traces and and logs and events and so on, but the the message being that we need more types of data because it gives us much better observability to, to cater to all sorts of different flows different use cases, which I think is exactly what you as a consumer of what they build, you feel that uh, first-hand, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the example we were talking about earlier, right, which is production debugging, that wouldn't be possible if you didn't have uh, a signal for errors, which is a separate pillar according to Yuri, and I I totally agree with that, right, because errors you should treat very differently from normal metrics and our logs, and The whole reason why production debugging is useful is because you can detect individual errors and actually uh, snapshot one of those and and start debugging or treat them somehow differently, right? Without treating errors as a special case, you wouldn't even have the ability to go and zoom in on a uh, live issue in your system. Um, And yeah, he has uh, listed a few pillars. I mean, if, if you wanna be philosophical, we can list extra pillars, right? We can talk about data observability as like its own separate pillar because the techniques you use for that are entirely different from, you know, from what tempo, uh stands for, and we can come up with other things as well, uh, but overall, yeah, it's, uh, I was never particularly happy with uh, just saying, oh, observability is logs, metrics, and traces, and, you
0: know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, when we chatted earlier is that it's not just that you have large variety of, of the telemetry data types to choose from, you also have a very easy way to mix and match. Do, do you want to share with us a bit about this experience? So,
1: so it's, it's one of those, again, look at the cool toys we have. Uh, where uh, That's an ability I dreamed of. Uh, so imagine in Grafana, right? Uh, you can Grafana is a great tool. I love Grafana. And you can connect it to a million different uh, data sources. And my biggest regret with Grafana was that I couldn't mix and match the sources. If I have... Uh, logs which I can turn into a metric by querying them every so often and I have uh, some time series database which traces uh, counters or uh, detections I couldn't just do arithmetic on those and actually have like a combined uh, sample or combined uh, graph I can build uh, and at Meta we, we, you know, we have a whole team dedicated to that so we, we can have different data sources and we can mix and match and I can actually do much more advanced things uh, to get the exact metric, or you know, high-level metric that's combination of different signals that I want, and I can alert on that. And uh, uh, again, that's that, that's the result of actually having dedicated teams uh, that actually talk to the, their immediate customers and ask them what they want, and build that thing. Right? The the, the decision loop for internal tools are obviously is obviously much shorter than you know for Grafana to go and learn what the market needs and build uh, whatever uh, whatever feature they actually want for next year
0: yeah uh, the, 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 we yeah. kind of having a platform engineering within the organization that uh, caters in a very short uh cycles and you mentioned that you uh, about the different uh, pillars I, I i totally agree with you that uh, we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to just three or even six and uh, we should be flexible but you should also remember that uh, after all all these signals are just the raw data. And the important sure. thing here is the insights. So for me, uh, and this is what I've been advocating for for quite a while, is to look at observability as a data analytics problem. Um, I actually blame the um, the observability definition itself that uh, took people to the pillars because everyone stuck to this uh, definition that uh, is taken from control theory that talks about. Uh, a measure of how well internal states of a system can, can be inferred from knowledge of its external output. So following this, people focused a lot on the external outputs, on the, uh, on the, on the telemetry data types that they can get from the system. Uh, and I've been trying to say, let, let's change the definition altogether. Let's talk about observability as the capability to allow a human to ask and answer questions about the system, which makes it In my view, much clearer that observability is essentially a data analytics uh, uh, problem. So, um, what you're describing is, uh, I think, uh, very aligned with that because what you said: once someone else took care of the infrastructure for you, you got uh, the 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 bandwidth to address the analytics part, and uh, and then start challenging yourselves even after so many years in the industry. With things that you haven't get gotten to to around to uh, to actually addressing. So, um, uh, if you want to just tell us a bit about your your experience with that,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree, it's a data analytics problem. Beyond that, it's a business problem. It's all it always has been, right? It's just we we kind of were stuck in the mentality of let's address the engineering challenges of it, right? Which and you always tackle in the order of what's easiest. So, you, so the easiest has always has always been logs, right? We invented logs. Pretty much at the same time, we invented writing code. And then, and, and then you had all the uh, like the different steps and each one is slightly more difficult, right? Then you get metrics and then you get traces and you start getting fancy and then do other things. But, uh, but yeah, it's always been about how do we provide value to the customer? So you, now I've been exposed to that mindset to a much higher degree than before, which is you start with what is the impact for the customer and then you work backwards towards, what is the data we need to collect in order to quantify that and make sure we're providing exactly what we promised. And from that, you work backwards and you and you actually break down the data analytics problem into what data sources we need to create. Maybe the data doesn't exist as logs and metrics, or maybe it's a mix of them, right? So, so this idea of, it's very fluid. Logs can be metrics, right? And metrics can be broken down into snapshots and, 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 you know, and treated as data and queried. So
0: it's, they talk about not having data, but too, too many times, actually, especially in your scale, it's like thousands of metrics that are being collected, but you need to understand, so what do we need to put on a dashboard, on to alert on or that, that it's yeah. a harder problem because you have so much data that maybe other organizations don't have this uh, rich man's problems, as we say. It, it, it actually creates other problems you wouldn't expect. For example, the fact that the
1: observability tools are so accessible. Uh, combined with the expectation of every team to be, you know, self-driven and responsible for their own stack, it means that because systems are so um, deeply integrated, that there's many levels, right? Each level of the system has someone responsible for it who will go and try to create observability to make sure that they're delivering value up the the stack. And so just as a trivial example, let's say we have a system which uh, for the customer appears, that doesn't even uh, matter to them right because it, it does fraud detection if the customer if it's working, the customer doesn't experience fraud but beyond that there's the payment system and under that there's some kind of gateway for processing transactions and beyond that there's a heuristic and a metal, ml model system and be, uh, below that there's a data system and so on and so on and each one of those layers creates their own responsibility oh. for observability, right because they build their own metrics and alerts and so you end up with a with a system where a particular Uh, Indicator might have seven different teams alerting on that indicator, which is like a whole different new category of alert fatigue, right? Because now uh, everyone experiences that signal that maybe came from uh, like a database node being overloaded. And it it created a different disruption at different layers of the stack, and everyone alerts on that. And then now everyone wakes up and tries to figure out why is my chunk of the system uh, misbehaving? And then you have to dig down into what the, what is the problem. Maybe it's you know, the model is faulty, or maybe the database is actually overloaded. And so, I haven't actually experienced that kind of alert fatigue before because it's not just that you have too many alerts. Everyone did that, right? Everyone were doing ability overcorrected to having too many alerts, and then they learned the hard way, you know, to reduce the, that's just the critical alerts, and then they find some kind of middle ground. But here, it's it's an organizational and a communication problem, right? Different teams for very good reasons, because they're responsible and self-driven and and they want to give the best value to customers, they create alerts that overlap with everybody else. And it's not just alerts, right? It's just creating metrics and then signals and all so on. Um, And so it stops being like a pure observability problem and becomes a communication and organization problem where you have to actually somehow um, correlate different needs from different teams if you want to make it efficient. And it's not a solved problem. right? That's one of the things w- where we need to spend a lot of effort. This is like one of those higher order issues where you're done with the physical stuff, and now you actually have to get into the hard stuff, which is dealing with human beings uh, and actually getting them to build like a combined plan of how we're going to alert on a single um, incident across different teams because maybe everyone cares about the exact same threshold, but maybe every team cares about a slightly different aspect of that indicator. Yeah. Um, so this, this is what, what I spend know, a lot you, of time on. You, you
0: get the alerts as we, as we speak. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. I hope everything's okay in the system there. <laughs> um, so yeah, so like, uh,
1: th- that's the one thing I spend a lot of time on, which is not something I ever expected to do in the co- context of observability, right? Which is actually convincing different teams to work together and create combined alerts, right? And then, you know, having having a process of how do you deal with a particular issue.
0: And, and I think it's it's also interesting, one of the things that were, I found very impressive at uh, Meta, I have quite a few friends uh, that have worked at some uh, period or the rest, even before uh, establishing Meta in the Facebook days, uh, and every one of them, every single one of them talked about uh, how data-driven the company is as, as, a, as a mindset, as a mentality. I heard that from product managers, from engineers, from everyone across the board, uh, so that that's a fascinating culture, I think, uh, uh, to have. Uh, and, and another thing that goes hand in hand with that is uh, uh, having things actionable. So uh, having data is nice, but uh, data-driven also means uh, actionable. And, uh, and I know you put a lot of emphasis on that. So maybe you can tell us a bit about how you make the observability data actionable. So th- this,
1: again, comes from uh, the company philosophy, right? Because... The expectation of every engineer and every team is that you're responsible for everything that you're doing. Don't expect somebody else to be responsible. And so, because you have all the tools you want, pretty much everything starts with defining the well, the equivalent of pager duty, right? So every every team has their own pager duty, so to speak, uh, hierarchy, and it's every piece of code, everything is tagged with who owns it and who's responsible. So. You, Unlike other companies I work uh, at uh, pretty much for the past 20 years where you could possibly have code in production who has no owner or a system in production that nobody is responsible for. Every single line of code has someone who is maybe incorrectly, but someone who is responsible and they will get an alert if something goes wrong. That, that's the default A Non-call
0: attached to every single line of code. That, that's amazing. Not like every system
1: component that it makes sense to have, you know, er, er, someone responsible for. So not I wouldn't say every single line of code, but obviously code components, like the whole thing, uh, you can have it at the component level, at the system level, uh, modules, whatever you want. And obviously different software systems. So uh, infrastructure like databases, everything has one or more on-call chains attached to it, um, and that creates a mindset of. Well, I'm on the on-call, I have to uh, wake up in, at night if something goes wrong and I'm responsible. And I'm saying that in a positive way, people actually feel responsible and they spend time thinking about what are we going to do because we're in charge of this, that's the default state. Uh, and I, I think that, that's that's a small change in mindset, but it creates huge implications for the way we actually deploy systems, right? It's impossible to deploy a software system without it being observable and someone being responsible for it. Unlike before where I could totally deploy some service at a different company and just not have any alerts or metrics or any pager duty on calls to it. And that will be like an okay state until it breaks and then we need to figure out who to, who's to blame, right? Um, so, that, so that one change leads to a completely different culture of how you actually treat observability because it is the personal responsibility of every engineer. Alright, because, uh, yeah, so that, so that's, that's something I haven't experienced before Meta, and I think that's, again, a luxury of having all the engineering problems solved for you, and now you can, not just solve for you, but actually the process is established, right, so you come into the company, and there's a process, and you have to kind of adapt to the culture of personal responsibility for everything you do, like every piece of code you ship.
0: That's, uh, that's amazing. I think that uh, making the data actionable to the level of, of ownership and the very clear flow, that's uh, that's taking... You know, I, I've been talking about the Dora metrics, and I think one of the things that uh, they added, I think, last year was to talk about the move from availability to reliability, and I think it, it relates to me because um, uh, it's the, the ownership and the fact that each uh, you know function team... Uh, microservice owners, uh, squad, whatever the structure is, has the full ownership end-to-end, but also has all the observability needed to uh, take care of that end-to-end. That's, uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, we're about to run out uh, of time for this section, so maybe one last point. Uh, obviously, not everyone is meta or a hyperscaler, so what would be if you have one, one tip that you would like to give a uh, takeaway for the audience What would be your advice for small-scale, mid-sized companies to get closer, uh, let's say, to the meta experience as much as possible?
1: So it's actually entirely possible today uh, to buy most of this experience when you're you're a company, especially a small company, because it's relatively cheap, right? It's based on usage. Uh, It wasn't like five or six years ago, but today uh, you should definitely do it. You should do it as early as you can afford to spare the attention for it. Right. And and it's going to be a journey, obviously. It's, you're going to start with the things that hurt the most, which is, again, the, the basic level of the, of the reality is it working or not? Are the machines up or not? But just, you know, to, the, there are tools. You need to believe that tools are available for you. You just need to find them and, and pay for them. Um, don't try to build your own. It's, that's, that's my advice. Don't Just don't do it. Uh, find a company that addresses 80% of what you need and
0: pay them money for that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, maybe, uh, do you want to tell the audience how they can uh, follow you and reach out to you uh, after the episode?
1: Um, sure. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, by name, or on Twitter if you are brave enough to use Twitter these days. Uh, it's just okay. at Dave Ostrowski. Um Yeah, or you can uh, you can search Dave Dostrovsky on YouTube and find a bunch of my talks,
0: including stuff about observability and so on. Uh, yeah, I and- highly recommend it. And uh, with that, I would like to uh, uh, move on to the next uh, section, the breaking news. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I, uh, I already shared the link uh, of, for Yuri uh, blog post, highly recommended. I'll also post it on the, uh, on the show notes. Uh, I I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we just had the KubeCon North America, which was uh, excellent, and uh, there were very good sessions. Uh, I I saw that the videos started uploading actually quite advanced on the CNCF YouTube channel, so I highly recommend uh, checking it out and uh, seeing the recordings. Uh, I'll try and post some of the things that I find interesting also on on my Twitter uh, if you want to uh, have some some, uh, filtered list. Um, so that's about kubecon uh, and uh, around kubecon there have been some uh, very interesting announcements so one of them is that open telemetry uh, demo is now generally available uh, this is a, a, a work that has been going on uh, by the demo sig uh, the special interest group uh, they've done a magnificent uh, job I actually was very proud to see that presented on the hotel uh, booth at kubecon and the, the demo is uh, essentially shows every Open telemetry language SDK uh, it shows a complete tracing flow with automatic uh, instrumentation with manual instrumentation, custom uh, spans and many other things so highly recommended to, uh, to check out I'll uh, post the uh, information about this here and also with our audience. Um, that's uh, from the open Telemetry uh, notifi- uh, notification side was also we mentioned uh, also on the chat, about correlating different pieces of data, and uh, Grafana as, as a lead uh, a visualization. So I, I saw a very, very nice uh, plugin that the Parker project, the Continuous Profiling project, uh, created a plugin for Grafana that enables correlating metrics with uh, profiling. Uh, very impressive. I haven't played it with it myself, but I saw the, uh, the bit of demo that they showed uh, and i even tweeted it and, and uh, very very interesting and uh, if you uh, look to into adopting uh, continuous profiling more uh, extensively uh, as you've heard on this chat uh, lots of uh, potential in in, uh, in continuous profiling uh, then I, I would highly recommend um, one other thing uh, that uh, draw uh, my drew my attention Julius uh, vols uh, the guy one of the uh, people wrote uh, prometheus uh, is behind promlabs uh, together with chronosphere they uh, open sourced promlens uh, for those who are not familiar promlens is, is a query builder a tool for for building uh, understanding debugging complex uh, promql queries so a uh, very very nice addition to the prometheus uh, prometheus stack i'll post it here as well for the uh, for the live stream audience uh, have you, uh, do you have any, any, uh, have you heard and you look to any, any of these?
1: So there. I've heard of them, like, I try to read all the blogs. It's starting to be less and less relevant to me lately. So I'm like a year out of date, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I used to be much more on the pulse. Uh, I'm, uh, these days I'm much more about, you know, data and, uh, and dark architecture than observability. I'm, uh, giving a. Talking two days at the Build Stuff conference about data architecture. So I'm, okay. I'm moving away from observability, unfortunately, because, you know, they solved it for me. I can't do anything new in there.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. So first of all, if, uh, if you want to share afterwards with the audience the link to your talk, a good uh, recommendation for uh, this week. Do you want to say is uh, that uh, online? Uh, uh, right. no. Or if you happen to be in Lithuania,
1: in Vilnius, you can come in person and see the talk uh, on Thursday. But it's going to be online of course and it's about uh breaking down monolithic uh data architecture into micro meshes
0: amazing amazing actually i'm also going to uh talk uh, this week at uh all day devops another uh conference that uh, at least for our live stream uh, audience that are hearing now if you're not familiar uh, highly recommended it. it's uh, i think uh, considered the uh the biggest, uh, the largest DevOps uh, conference uh, to date. Uh, It's a 24 hour conference uh, and it's online and free. So uh, it's easy to attend. It's uh, November 10th, so uh, this Thursday as well, or for some time zones, it will uh, overflow to to, uh, November 11th. Uh, So I'll be also speaking there uh, about open source observability so highly recommended uh, with regards to uh, events, and uh, and uh, in a couple of weeks' time we'll also be at OSMC, Open Source Monitoring Conference in uh, Germany at Nuremberg, uh, another uh, very interesting conference in the domain of open source uh, and uh, observability. Um, I think that's as much as we have uh, our time. So I wanted to uh, thank uh, again David uh, for joining me for this episode. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me uh and of course i'd like to uh, thank uh, everyone who uh, joined us on the live stream or on the uh, podcast Uh, that's all for uh, today as always all the episodes uh, will be available on the favorite uh, podcast app or on youtube by the end of the month the last thursday of the month is usually the day we publish to the podcast apps uh, and if you are listening now to this episode on the podcast apps, do know that we stream the episodes live on Twitch and YouTube live. So just uh, follow us uh, uh, on uh, Twitter at OpenObserve for updates about the live streams and to share your comments and suggestions. Or follow me at Horvitz uh, to stay up to date on the shows. And if you have something to share, if you uh, want to contribute, if you're a subject matter expert uh, in one of these domains, feel free to submit a talk proposal. We have it on our uh, OpenCFP at openobservability.io. With that, thank you very much for listening. I'm Bhutan Horvitz, and I'll see you on next month's episode.